hardest sermon that I'd ever had to preach because of obviously we all knew the gravity of what was coming and and we all had an idea and unfortunately we weren't wrong were we for so many reasons not just the loss of life for so many other reasons there's more than just the loss of life and that might sound like a glib thing to say but if there's anything I want to get across this morning it is the 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 world has been gripped by the fear of death has anyone noticed that the fear of death has come upon the world and yet I I I became I became a Christian in my early 20s and one of the things that I discovered when I became a Christian was that this was the answer to death Christianity Christianity that what Jesus did at the cross was the answer to death. He won the victory over death. Not that we wouldn't die, not that we wouldn't die anymore in the physical, but that we wouldn't die anymore in what really matters, and that's in our spirit, that we live on. That when this body, when this earthly tent, as the Bible calls it, this earthly tent that's decaying, and for some of us, worse than others, but hey, that's okay. When this has gone, when this has failed us, because it's going to happen at some point to every single one of us, that we will live on. If you're a Christian in this room, then eternity has already begun. Do you realise that? You, you, we, we look forward to heaven. We look, in fact, Pastor Tina taught, taught me this. I remember saying this. Eternity's already begun. It's already begun. You are already in eternity now. All that's going to happen when we physically die is that we're going to pass over from this realm into a different realm. But eternity is here now. We live forever. We have it now. I, I want to I talk about Ecclesiastes. I, I've, I've, in my personal devotions, I, I've been, I was read to, led to, lead, to read, I should say, Proverbs. Anyone like the book of Proverbs? Fantastic book, absolutely stunning book. So much wisdom in there. And then on to Ecclesiastes. Now, anyone love Ecclesiastes as much? No, I'm, I'm guessing probably not. I'm guessing there's one or two that maybe don't find it. When I first became a Christian, right, I remember I was, like, like I say, early 20s. And I remember hearing about the book of Job. I started in Genesis reading the Bible, right? So I just thought it seemed like the natural place to start. I didn't know where to begin. I started reading it before I really met a Christian, and, and that's how I started in Genesis, you know. Anyway, so I'm, I'm going through, and, you know, and I'm getting closer and closer to, to Job, and I became a Christian, and, and everything started going wrong in my life. Literally everything that could go wrong went wrong. It got worse and worse and worse, and, and I was like, I was, I, you know, you, when you're in that place of like, I can't take any more. Now, I was young. I was only in my 20s. You know, what's gone on recently, it was, it was nothing compared to that, but it's, you know what it's like when you're in the middle of it. It seems like it, doesn't it? It seems like everything's going wrong, and you can't take any more, and all of that stuff. 
And, and I remember someone telling me about the book of Job and what happened to Job. And I think that was the last book in the Bible I ever read. I couldn't bring myself to read that book when I heard about what that guy went through. And I'm sure there's some of you in here that when you read Ecclesiastes, because he can be quite negative, can't he, Solomon, in there? You know, anyone read it? Anyone know what I'm on about? Come on. So, I probably shouldn't be doing that. Should I ask him for audience participation? I, I, I'm, I'm a preacher. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I'm doing, I'll do my best. <laughs> Solomon was given the, the most incredible wisdom. Right, he asked. We I preached about this a few weeks ago. If anyone saw it, I mentioned touched on Solomon and and the wisdom that he was given. He asked for wisdom, and he was given it. He was the wisest man of his time. I wouldn't call him the wisest man ever because I would say that accolade goes to Jesus. And I would equally say, and this was the sermon I preached on it a few weeks ago, that actually, if you think that okay, Solomon had all that wisdom and that was great, but you can't. Actually, you can. You can have the same wisdom that Solomon had. Any of us can. We just have to ask God for it. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So we can have the wisdom of Solomon, right? But at that point, Solomon became the wisest man ever, I would say, from reading it. That would be my interpretation of what happened and what went on with Solomon. And then when you read Ecclesiastes, which, you know, everyone agrees was written by, the, I think everyone I know agrees, anyway, was written by Solomon because it talks about the teacher and so on and, and what it describes. It's hard to think it was anyone other than Solomon that wrote the book, although he doesn't actually give his name in it. He, he starts off the book and I don't know whether he's having a, uh, it couldn't be a midlife crisis because he was actually an old man at this point when he's writing Ecclesiastes. But he's kind of having a midlife crisis. He's, he's depressed. He's down. It's all negative. In fact, he gets to the point in, in chapter two and he basically says it is all. And, and now the, the word there is it, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced Abel, right? And it's H-E-B-E-L. But it's pronounced Abel or Abel. I forget now, actually. I did look it up and check on it. But that word, it means, there's a few different meanings you can ascribe to it. Different translations ascribe different meanings. And they're all valid from different points of view. But it means vanity. It's all vain. Okay? And other translations call it basically everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He's basically saying everything, I've lived my life, I've done everything there is to do, and it's all meaningless. It's all a waste of time. It's all just, what's the point? He's literally in that place right there. And, and that's what he says. It's everything. He, goes, he actually says everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So where do we go from there? Fortunately, he does kind of get away from that and, and it does change. The tone does change as you get on through the book. But it takes quite a bit. Anyone know where it changes? It's literally in the last couple of verses. Literally, the whole meaning. If, you, if, you ever, if, you wanna, if you've not read Ecclesiastes, and, and I'm sure there's one or two in here that haven't read Ecclesiastes, right? Read the book, but your hope is that and don't read don't go to the last verses well you could do I, I won't I, 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 you, I'll, I'll let you do that if you want to but basically the last two or three verses that last paragraph is the meaning of Ecclesiastes so he goes through the whole book for the last couple of verses to give you what the meaning of that book is and what the point of it all is but the rest of it is not pointless because he makes some incredibly valid points that are, that are really important to us today 
They're important to us now for what we're going through, for what is happening in the world at the moment. Not just that for your life, for you. Not just for the world, but for you and your life. Uh, you know, I cannot imagine what people have gone through in this. My family has not really been touched that greatly by it from a health perspective. I have to stand here and say that. Tina, Pastor Tina, do, do, are you a worse? We... We, we, I can't stand this. say she definitely had it because she didn't have a test. But we're all pretty convinced that she had it. And, and there was a point when I said to Vicky, she was about to speak to her mum and I, and, and I had the conversation with her that don't leave anything unsaid. And we sat the kids down and... You know, and we said the same to them. And, but we came through, you know, Pastor Tina's okay. She's fine. She got through. But there was that moment of don't leave anything unsaid. Because I, 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 I'm thinking of my wife. I mean, I, Tina's a mum to me. She's literally a mum to me. She literally is. So, she, you know, she means the world to me, absolutely. But I'm having to say to my wife, do not leave anything unsaid. Make sure you say everything that you ever want to say now. You don't miss it out. And I, I can't imagine what some people have gone through. And I don't really need to because I don't need to know. I don't need to know what you personally have gone through because I can stand there with confidence and say that God knows. He knows. He knows every single thing that has happened to you, not just with coronavirus, but with the, all the other things that have been going on over the last few months as well, which we've talked about a lot. And here's the thing, you know, anyone heard them sermons? You know, the, the classic one is, is when the disciples are in the boat and they're crossing the Jordan and, you know, and Peter gets out the boat. You know what we're on about? And, and anyone heard the sermon, Peter, you've got to get out the boat. Yeah, heard that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Preacher gets up there. Got to get out the boat. Sermon, great sermon. You got to get out the boat. And everyone's, oh, yeah, I've got to get out the boat. I've got to go and step out and all of that, right? Anyone ever heard a sermon where it's like, you got to get in, you got to get in together, you got to get tight, you got to, yeah, okay. Which is it? Are we getting in the boat? Are we getting out the boat? You know, do we just, is it just like whichever sermon the preacher preaches that week? You know what? I, I want to tell you, right? It's not as easy as that, right? That's a little bit of a cop out from a congregational point of view. And really, if you, a good preacher shouldn't really just preach, you've got to get out the boat because that's not fair to preach. Because for some people, you'll, you're, you're, where you're at, you'll need to get into the boat. And Proverbs, talk, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes talks about this so, so well. In Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time for everything a season for everything anyone love that phrase that it uses all the way to under the sun for everything under the sun you know if if you're struggling at the moment with anything at all just consider the sun just consider the sun because it sets in the evening tonight at what about 11 ish the sun will drop maybe 10 ish we'll have twilight and and then it'll go dark and then in the morning, God willing, if this isn't the last day of this planet, the sun will rise again in the morning. And you did nothing about it. Not a thing. You didn't put a penny in the slot machine. You didn't pray for it to rise. You didn't do any of those things. The sun set and it rose again. And if it didn't rise again, 
we would not be we would not survive for more than a few hours i would imagine if the sun went out we this earth would would end forget coronavirus this earth would end if the sun did not rise you know perhaps the most important thing to to keep life on earth and it does it every day morning and night it has to set if it didn't set we'd all burn to death if it didn't rise we would all freeze to death but it does it like clockwork every day. The seasons in winter, the days go short. In summer, the days go long. And you didn't do a thing about it. Is that not a sign that God has got it all? Why worry? Why worry? I know, I know some of you are going, I don't know what you're all going through. And I don't know, even the ones who are do, I don't know how bad it is for you. But let me tell you this, God isn't worried your situation right now, God isn't worried. He isn't worried. Uh, a guy called Victor Franklin, anyone heard of him? He was a Jew during World War II and he was a psychologist and an author and he was taken into the, one of the concentration camps in World War II. You can imagine, probably don't need to say any more about what he went through. And but he wrote about his experiences and what at that time obviously we all know what happened to the people who turned up at the camps you know but not all of them were were were, were i don't even know what word to use some of them were spurred and were kept basically to be slaves for the germans and do whatever they wanted them to do and he was one of them. He was one of the ones, one of the few that was spurred off, off every train and, and all of that stuff. And, but of those people that were spurred, not all of them survived. 23 out of 24 of them ended up dying through ill treatments, malnutrition, you name it, all of those things. Only one in 24 survived the concentration camps who weren't, you know, killed on purpose, if you like. And while he was in the camp, he was a psychologist and he researched and he looked at, at what was it? What was, is, was there something that could be learned from the ones who survived and the ones who didn't? Was there anything about it? And what he realised was that the ones who survived, not only the ones who survived, some of the ones who died, by the way, but uh, pretty much all of the ones that he could see that survived, they had a meaning for what was going on. You see, the Jews, if you think about the Jews and their history and who they are, they were God's chosen people. They were the chosen ones. God chose them. God chose the Jews. God's chosen people. And then they find themselves in this situation that was hell on earth. And many of them, as you can understand, started questioning, God, why are we going through this? What is happening? What is going on? But the ones who survived tended to be the ones who prayed and found the meaning. They asked God what the meaning was, rather than ascribing their own meaning, rather than giving their own meaning to it, or just letting it hang in the air that I don't know what this means. They took the time to find the meaning and find the purpose of what they were going through. Verse 
And the book of Ecclesiastes is all about that, finding the meaning in life. What is the meaning? What do we do? And, and Solomon, he goes through it. He says, the Bible says this says everything that's done, everything under the sun, Solomon said, is all vanity. It's all vanity. It's the same word as idolatry. There's a, the other translation of that word Abel or Abel, I think is it, how it's better pronounced, is idolatry. In other words, kind of taking meaningless pursuits and, and Proverbs talks about that. Towards the end of Proverbs, it, there's a warning about meaningless pursuits. Doing things that are pointless. Spending your life doing things that are of, of no worth. And then you read Ecclesiastes and he says it's all of no worth. There is a, it does work out in the end. Solomon goes through it and he says pleasure. It's vanity. Vanity. Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever, you name it. It's all vanity. It's all vanity. All of it is vanity. He goes on in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This was, he was, it's believed he was the richest man in the world in, in his day. He was like the, uh, who's the guy who owns Amazon. He was him. He's got a funny name, begins with a B, I think. That's it, Bezos. He was the Bezos of his day. Although he was a ruler and a king, so maybe he was more akin to the Trump of his day, perhaps. Although I'm not quite sure he was like Trump in many ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, he was in some ways. He says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. It was all meaningless. Solomon had all the money, all the power he could ever want, any man could have had in his day. And he said, I kept my heart from none of it. I experienced everything there was. It'd be like today buying the flashiest cars, going to, you know, to the Bahamas and all of those fancy places, the Maldives, all of those places, having just the greatest time of all. And then getting to the end of it and going... It was all meaningless. I had all the money that, the, that I could ever have and I did everything I could ever do and I'm at the end of it all and I'm looking back and I'm thinking it was meaningless. My life has been a waste. It, is, it was all for naught, if you like. That old-fashioned phrase. He goes on in verse 11 and he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, he says, behold, I love that word, behold. I considered all my hands had done. He'd built the greatest temple. That was one of the things Solomon did. He built the greatest temple. He said, I considered all the toil, all everything I'd done, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing, nothing. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He went on and he said, wisdom. I tried wisdom. 
He must have been going through, you get the, the, the idea, he's going through thing after thing. He's had a tried wisdom. I tried wisdom. Verse 15, it says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He worked hard. He, he really worked. He toiled. How often are we told work hard? You know, I preach a sermon on it back at around Christmas time. Work hard. Give it everything. Work hard. And, and that's not a bad thing to work hard. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to work hard. In fact, if you read Proverbs, Proverbs tells us, hey, if you're lazy, go and look at the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> that's what it says, isn't it? Go and consider the ant, you sluggard. Get up off your backside and do something, is what Proverbs tells us. And then Solomon says, yeah, do that, but it's all vanity. Do that, but it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. He goes on, he says, he hated it. He actually says, he goes on in Ecclesiastes, he says, he hated all of the toil of his hands as he got older. Anyone remember why? Because he realized that it was all going to be for the, all going to be given, if you like, to the people who would come after him. In other words, I've done all this, all this. Look at all this that I've done. Look at how wonderful and amazing it is. And then as he got older and maybe the more wisdom, he realized I've done all of this and I'm not going to see the fruit of it. I've done it all for someone else who didn't deserve it, didn't earn it. And he hated it. He actually says he hated it. He actually says he hated it. All the striving in the world, all the money, all the power, all of it was idolatry, vanity, worthless pursuits. It's so important that Solomon goes on to say that a stillborn child is better off than a man who spends his life on worthless pursuits because they will find rest. The point of the whole book, and I could go on and on and on. The point of the whole book is that we avoid worthless pursuits and that we do something of worth. But what? But what when literally he goes, and I could go on, he goes through the entire book trying to find what is it that we do? What is it that we do? He tries everything. He lists everything, single pursuit that you could possibly turn your hand to, turn your eye to, turn your ear to. And he says, concludes in it all. It is all meaningless. It is all vanity. But note this. Here's the thing that could be missed. It's subtle. He's not saying that life is meaningless and life is worthless and life is vanity. What he's actually saying is that all the pursuits of man, all of the things that we pursue, all of the things that we kind of go after, that we chase after, all the empire building that we do, all the looking for this and that title, looking for this promotion and hey, you know, we do it in church, don't we? Hey, how great can we make the building? How great can we make the church? What can we do? All of this stuff. And it's all vanity. And it's all vanity, he says. It's all meaningless. It's all worthless.
until he says this right at the end. He says that actually the meaning, the meaning in it all, the full meaning of life, the full meaning of everything we do, all of our pursuits, all of the love that we show to our loved ones, all of the work that we do. Clearly we're not saying here and the Bible's not saying here that we shouldn't work. There is a meaning to this. And the meaning is that it only makes sense in God. It only makes sense in God. Only when we seek Him. Only when we turn to Him. Only when we ask Him, Lord, what is the meaning of this? What is it? What is it? I, I don't know what you're going through, but I can say this. The things that you can't change, pray about them. Seek God about them. Hand them over to Him. Hand them over to Him. And find your peace in God. Find your peace in it. Because if you chase after it, if you force the issue... It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. And it's not that we shouldn't do anything. It's not that we should stand idly by and just say, oh, let's just, just sit back and what does it matter? We shouldn't do anything about it because what will be, will be. Que sera, sera. Anyone know what verse that is in the Bible? You won't because it's not in there. There's no word that it says, hey, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Our meaning is found in fearing God, honoring Him, honoring Him, and doing the, the things that you were created to do. Esther said this, or rather, Mordecai said this to Esther. Maybe you were born for such a time as this. Maybe what you're going through at the moment, maybe your role in it, maybe you were born to be there for someone else in this and what they're going through. Maybe your role, as hard as it is, as much as we want to grab hold of, of the thing that we've longed for and desired for so long, but maybe your role in this is actually to be there for others who are going through it. To hold the hand, to support them, to be a strength, to be a rock. To show them the light. To show them the light of the world. To show them salvation. To show them that actually, if we lived for 80 years, if we lived for 80 years, and it was worthless pursuits, God says someone who'd never lived is better off. You'd have been better to never have been born than to live your whole life on worthless pursuits. So I say this. If you're a Christian in this, in this room, 
And I'm not offering the answer to this. So often preachers get up and they say, here's how we do it. Here's what we do. We do this, we do that, we do the other. I'm not offering the answer to this. Who am I to say what the answer to this is? But actually our role as Christians is to show the non-Christians the light. To stop them from wasting the 80 or more years or 70 or whatever it is that they get. To show them that there's more to life than this. That there is a purpose. And better to, it says in the Psalms, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I would go as far as to say this, and it's a painful thing to say, but better is one day, one day lived as a Christian than a thousand not, than a thousand elsewhere. And uh, my uh, Tina's sister, many of you will know this, her husband, Tony, his name was, uh, as, as me and Vicky got to know each other, the, this guy, Tony, he, he was an incredible guy. We talk about, in fact, I wasn't even going to mention him, actually. He's not in my notes or anything like that. But I mentioned because it's such an incredible story. Can I stand on here? I, I'm, you know when I talk about being a, a, like back at school? I'm like a naughty. I, 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 honestly, I, I, keep, I feel like I'm back at school like with all of this. The more they put the pressure on, I want to like rebel. And I, I can't. I can't do that. I've got to, you know, but I want to like, I want to rebel. I was so naughty at school. Anyway, anyway. So <laughs> but this guy, Tony... He, 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 he grew up in a family of eight in, in Orford. Many of you will know Orford. And they, apparently they had no shoes. You kind of hear these stories. And in our day and age, you can't imagine kids having no shoes, can you? But I, I, I believe this was true. I believe this was the case. You know, they didn't have shoes or they were sharing shoes and all of this kind of stuff, you know. It's not always been as it is today. It's not always been as it is today. And, and he grew up in that environment, and, and he ended up so rich, he lived in Bowdoin where the footballers lived, or live now. They, that's where they lived. He, he built up a business from scratch. He was a self-made millionaire. They went around the world. Uh, you know, you name it, they had it. They had everything. Some of you are nodding because you know what I'm saying. And, and I met Vicky, and Tony was infamous in the family, but not because of all of his money or anything like that. He was infamous in the family because every week Stella would come to church, and then after church she would go back and see Tina, and she would be sobbing, sobbing, because her life was hell with him. He was horrible cruel, nasty, vicious. He, he made her life a living hell for going to church. He would mock her. He would, it, the house was cold. There was no love there or anything like that. This man was feared in the family. And I'm coming into the family kind of, you know, going out with Vicky and, and I'm hearing about this guy and I'm like, what? And Vicky's like, you know, he, he sends shivers down your spine, this guy. And apparently when, when you saw him, he would just 
he, he cut you in half with his tongue. And he had the money to do it, and he had the, the success to do it, and all of this stuff. And only a few months that, that I'd known Vicky and we'd been going out, and then basically Tina gets a phone call off him. He'd ended up ill. He'd ended up with cancer, and he'd been given a few months to live. And his response was, he said to Stella, you better tell your family they better not pray for me. I don't want any of that. No one better pray for me. And so we'd heard this. And then, I don't know, I forget the exact time scales. It couldn't have been that long, maybe a month or so on, something like that. And then he phoned Tina and asked, would she go and visit him? And when she did, he, he was sobbing. Sobbing in repentance. Asking to, for forgiveness wanting to make his peace with God. This was a man who was determined, absolutely determined that there was no God and he would have no part on that. And I don't believe for one second that he just changed his mind as some ploy that he might get into heaven. This was a complete and utter transformation. I, I saw him, the first time I met him was in the hospital ward. And, and Vicky went to see him and she was almost shaking as she went to see him. In fact, I think the first time she saw him after this event was, or after he became a Christian, got saved, whatever you know, phrase you like to use. He basically, she, she went in and, and she described it like this. She said, you could feel the presence of God in the room as you walked in the room. It was incredible absolutely incredible and he was a self-made man and all of his and he and, and when he, he asked to see Vicky he sobbed apologizing because as many of you'll know Vicky's dad died when she was about eight he died of cancer and so if you think about it he was really this was you know that was his brother-in-law who died and he realized at this point he really should have been a father figure to Vicky and he wasn't and he was sobbing, apologizing, and, you know, of, of how he, he let her down and all of these things. But all, he had all the money, all the wealth, all the admiration, all the fear. You name it, whatever you wanted, he had it. And it was all for naught. And, you know, the only bit of his life that I believe mattered was those six to eight weeks that he had at the end. And I, and, and, and I say it confidently that he would have said the same. And Stella was asked, I don't know how long after, could have been years later, I know Vicky, it was Vicky who asked her, and she said, do you not re have regrets? Because apparently he, he could not have been more loving in those last eight weeks this was a man who used to cut her in half ridicule her mock her and all he could do in those eight weeks was tell her how beautiful she was how much he adored her i'm kind of choking up a little bit as i'm saying this how much he loved her you know how she was his princess his sweetheart all of these wonderful wonderful things and she said oh no it was worth it it was all worth it just for those eight weeks and I don't know how we do it to that world out there. But I would say this. We've probably got one of the best opportunities that we'll ever have with what's going on in the world 
at the moment. Don't miss an opportunity. If you're looking for me to tell you how to do it, sorry. That's not how it works. You see, that's kind of, that's, you know, putting it on the preacher for him to do it. You know how it works is this, right? We're Christians. So Christianity means a relationship with God. Doesn't mean a priesthood, an old-fashioned priesthood where you come to me and I say, okay, I'll seek God on your behalf. And then I come back and I say, okay, here's what God said. Here's what God said you've got to do. That's not how it works. We can pray together and, you know, and we can have words and God can give us words for each other. But you, it's for you to develop your relationship with God. It's for you to step out in that. If you do it humbly, if you do it humbly, if you're not sure and you're thinking, oh, I don't, you know, what if I do it, what if I get it wrong? Just tell God that. Just say, hey, God, I might mess up here. I might get it wrong. And he'll be like, that's okay. That's okay. Your heart's in the right place. I get it. But you've got to step out. You see, if you don't step out, your heart isn't in the right place. Got to get out the boat. <laughs> I, you know what? I've not got a clock. Surely it's time. Surely it's time. How long have I been going for? Probably an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's time to end. It's time to end. It is well time. I've probably, I've probably gone well over. Guys, you know what? That wasn't really a sermon. It was just me rambling for 40 minutes or whatever it was. Um, wow, how good is it to be together? How good is it to be together? Whether, you know, whether it's your first time with us, whether you're a visitor, whatever it is, how good is it to be together? Ah. Oh, I want to run around and hug you all and I just, I can't and there's just something about that that feels wrong. No, I know, I know that. They all get nervous as if I'm going to do it. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. No. <laughs> oh, man. Someone want to pray? You know, we're together. Someone just pray. Someone in this room, say a prayer. Speak out. Just said you've got to get out the boat. Someone get out the boat and pray, will you, please? Otherwise, I'll never stop. <laughs>